I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hello and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. This year, Queen Elizabeth II reached a milestone no other queen has reached before her when she became the third longest ruling monarch in all of world history, having reigned for over 70 years. But did you know that her coronation ceremony in 1953 contained some subtle nods to another queen who made history 1,100 years earlier. In the liturgy for Queen Elizabeth's coronation, just after the crown was placed on her head, the Archbishop spoke the words, God crown you with a crown of glory and righteousness. And those exact words were said for the first time at the crowning of Judith of Wessex in 856, at exactly the same point in the ceremony, but at that time in Latin. The phrase was composed specifically for Judith by Archbishop Hinkmar because she was the very first woman to be crowned as queen among the West Saxons. Previously, the wife of the king had a remarkably low status. So why Judith? Why then? And what has it got to do with today's royals? To get answers to all of those questions, I've invited the brilliant medieval historian Florence Scott to join me today. Welcome, Florence. Florence writes the popular newsletter and blog, Auf Gifhu, which contains biographies of early medieval women. Florence is also doing a PhD on early medieval queenship in England, so just the right sort of person uh, to talk to about this. So this is your research then, is about early medieval queenship, but also on coronation ceremonies, is that right? Yeah, so my research is basically on the development of a kind of Christian version of queenship. So queens have existed for a long time. The concept of a queen as in a king's wife, not necessarily a queen who reigns in her own right, although there are a few of those. But I'm basically charting the emergence of a kind of ceremonial religious conception of queenship. And that kind of revolves around this coronation ceremony. Excellent. So let's go on to Judith specifically then and her story. So first of all, can you just give us some very basic background to her time and her place? So she's based in, in Wessex. Where is that? And who's the king? And, and what's the sort of political situation at the time? 
Yeah, so Judith is quite unusual in terms of the queens that I look at in that she wasn't actually born in England. She was a Frankish princess. She was the daughter of Charles the Bald, who was the king of West Francia. And she marries the king of Wessex, which is obviously one of several kingdoms that existed in England at this time. This is before England was a unified country. So when I use the word English, it's quite in a very general sense. And she marries this West Saxon king at 12 years old and then moves to England upon her marriage. And then she will go on to marry another West Saxon king. But we should probably get onto that a bit later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so let's start with this. So her king, the king in Wessex, is this isn't his first marriage. He's already quite well established. And in fact, he becomes the father, or he is already the father of several other future kings, isn't he? Yes. So when they get married, he actually has four grown sons already. Um, he was married to a woman called Osber. And we assume that his first wife had passed away by this point. But that's not necessarily a guarantee with kings in this period. There are often kings who will have a second marriage and the first wife is around somewhere, maybe in a nunnery, maybe not. But we do assume that his first wife has passed away at this point. But he does have two adult sons who are kind of vying for the kingship, kind of a little bit threatening to him. And Judith is actually younger than than a lot of his children. He's about 50 years old when they marry. And as I said, she's 12. So there's a huge kind of disparity in age and power there. I should probably mention also to our listeners that the king we were talking about is Ethelwolf and his yes. <laughs> most famous son is Alfred the Great. So we are talking about people of quite some notoriety, I suppose, in yeah. later history. But if we go on to Judith then, what's the first we hear of her? It's from a, a record from Francia, isn't it, that she first crops up? Yeah, so... With a lot of medieval women, early medieval women, the first that we hear of her is when she first kind of encounters the king who she's going to marry is when they get betrothed in July 856. And Athelwolf at that point is going on a pilgrimage to Rome. So on the way there, he stays with Charles the Bold at his court and then goes on pilgrimage, visits the Pope, comes back and in the October marries Judith. So fulfills the betrothal promise. And do we know what is in Cesar? I mean, we've already talked about the fact that he's got these sons and there's, there is a bit of rivalry back in, in Wessex. But mm. apart from that, presumably this, you know, she's 12. So this isn't a romantic thing going on. This is an, an alliance, isn't it? Is that the sort of motivation? Yeah, there's a few different ideas as to why this marriage took place. And I think the interesting thing about it is that we might not ever know why the marriage took place because it was quite a short-lived marriage. So any plans that were put in place when this marriage took place never actually came to fruition. But there is an idea that it may have been some kind of military alliance, possibly, you know, against Viking raids, because that was a, obviously a big occupation for kings at this time. And another idea which I find a little bit more compelling is the idea that Athelwolf was feeling a little bit threatened by his sons at this point. He was in a little bit of a weak position and his marriage was a kind of desperate attempt to gain a little bit more prestige to kind of wield against his sons and possibly produce more heirs if he needs to as well. Yeah, so there, there might have been quite a lot of pressure on, on Judith then to fulfil that role as a sort of future mother of kings or of rulers, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, 
from Charles the Bold's perspective as well, he's kind of putting forward his daughter to be sent into this quite dangerous situation. And I think probably what Charles the Bold wanted to get out of that was to exert a little bit of influence in Wessex. In this period, Charles the Bold is in a mode of kind of gaining influence in other kingdoms around him. So I think he's playing a long game here and hoping that his grandson will one day be the King of Wessex and that he or his successors will have some influence there. So Judith is very much being used as a pawn between these two kings. And obviously, being 12 years old, she probably didn't have that much say in her situation at this point. I think later on, she definitely takes things into her own hands later in her life. But at this point, she's quite vulnerable, I think. So that is such an interesting point, isn't it? But then one of the things that's so interesting about the records where we hear about her and where we hear about this marriage is exactly how it's described. And the fact that the record actually says that in their marriage ceremony, she gets crowned as a queen. And that is something unusual. Can you explain a bit more about that particular point? Yeah, so Judith's really key to my research because she's actually the earliest English queen who we can point to and say she had a coronation ceremony. And not only do we have evidence of that in several sources, but we also have the liturgical service, so the words that were actually written out at the ceremony that exists in a 7th century manuscript. So not only do we know that she was definitely crowned, but we can also almost recreate parts of that ceremony. And that's really, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? And quite unusual. But, you know, so so the, the record actually says this wasn't something that was the practice in Wessex. And I mean, why was that, do you think? Why was the king's wife not a queen? She was just sort of his wife. Yeah, so this is another thing that makes the marriage quite unusual, is that not only were cross-continental marriages quite rare, and not only were Frankish kings letting their daughters get married quite rare, but actually in Wessex, it was not the practice to have queens at this time. And King Alfred's biographer, Asser, actually, he obviously feels the need to explain this policy when he's writing Alfred's biography. And he talks about it being, he's not very happy about this. He calls it a detestable custom. And he says that basically because of a wicked queen in the past, Queen Eadba, and all the wicked deeds she got up to, the people of Wessex don't trust queens. They don't want to raise a woman up into that position. So um, Judith is obviously a special case, and I think that's probably coming from the fact that she's a Frankish princess and she has illustrious ancestry. She's Charlemagne's great-granddaughter, for example, And obviously her father would want her to have the right reputation when she's going off into another kingdom where it's quite dangerous for her. He'd want her to carry a bit of status with her. So obviously the circumstances conspired to create this queen who was actually quite unusual in lots of respects. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point, isn't it? It's the fact that you have a ruler here, Franco, who wants to make sure that his daughter is in the best possible place. So it may well have come, I suppose, from him more than from anybody else. But I do just have to pick up on this wicked queen of the past that's that's made the situation so bad for everyone else afterwards. Can you tell us a little bit about her story as well? Because that is a quite brilliant one. Yes, it's brilliant. And I should caveat it from the start with that it might not wholly be true. So this is this is Asa trying to explain why Alfred would have such a regressive policy towards queens. So 
He talks about this queen in the past, Yadba, who's actually a woman from Mercia, a different kingdom. She'd married a West Saxon king. And she was said to have poisoned all her enemies. She was quite scheming. And one of these schemes went quite wrong and she ended up accidentally poisoning her husband, the king, who died. So she fled to Francia, according to Asa, and um, she went to Charlemagne's court. And there is this there's really a funny scene where Charlemagne says to her that she can choose either him or his son to marry. And she says well, you're old, I want the son. And Charlemagne says, ah, if you'd chosen me, you could have married the son. But because you chose my son, you're not getting either of us. And he's quite offended. (laughs) (laughs) So he sends her off to be an abbess in a nunnery. And Asa tells us that even then she can't behave herself and she ends up committing debauchery with a man, an English man, apparently. So she flees again and she goes to Pavia and she dies begging on the streets of Pavia (laughs) with nothing. (laughs) So she kind of gets her comeuppance in the end. But it's not unusual for being a very kind of defamatory, exaggerated story about a queen A lot of the queens that we have evidence for is in these quite insulting anecdotes. And we have to be kind of critical about what's going on behind this story. You know, why is Asa telling us this? Well, he wants to justify Alfred. And why would Alfred want this story to be told? Well, there's all sorts of politics going on behind it, where the king who um, her father had kind of persecuted Alfred's grandfather. So there's a lot of politics going on behind this story. We shouldn't take it at face value, but it's still quite entertaining. (laughs) It is a brilliant story. But it does also really point out, doesn't it, the sort of the situation that these women end up finding themselves in, because they are, you know, as you were describing Judith as a bit of a a pawn earlier on, Mm. really, just being created into this alliance between the two kingdoms. And that's very much often the role. And then, of course, their sons might have a claim to the throne. And so there's there are so many complexities behind that. And, and, you know, Judith obviously finds herself in all sorts of similar situations, doesn't she, in a way? But sort of going back to her then, so... They get married, just crowns, um, and we have this ceremony. And, and this is where we have that link, isn't it? That the actual ceremony that we got to Queen Elizabeth, because part of that was actually reused, I believe, in the coronation ceremony. Is that right? Yeah. So some of this liturgy that was basically compiled for this ceremony was actually composed from scratch by the Archbishop of Rance, Pinkmar. So he's kind of composing this coronation prayer for her. Now, a lot of the, interestingly, a lot of the liturgy actually comes from a West Saxon rite for crowning kings. So they've adapted a king's rite for her, borrowed quite a lot of it just verbatim. And then he's written this coronation prayer for her. And some of the wording of that actually has survived over time, been adapted and adapted And the most recently that it was used was in 1953 at the coronation of Elizabeth II. So that's a really remarkable, isn't it? The reuse of it. And and was that very specifically talking about queens then as opposed to kings? Is is that why it was reused for her? The particular prayer that's used, it's the coronete dominus formula. So it's basically she's been crowned by the Lord is the phrasing. I don't think it's gender specific, I think. And that's what I find with a lot of the liturgy that I look at is actually that they're quite happy to adapt you know, liturgy for kings and put it in the queen's thing and and vice versa. They're not very strict about whether they're crowning a king or a queen. 
And, you know, I'm not an expert in the modern liturgical ceremonies of the Church of England, but the the formula that was used was basically just describing the process of actually the Lord crowning. So it's that kind of divine intervention in the ceremony that it's describing that they're appealing to. Fantastic. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Throughout June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honoring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, queens in Shakespeare, queens regnant and queens consort. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than not just the Tudors, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so going back then, so Judith is 12 years old and she then goes over to Wessex and she becomes the queen. But you've already hinted at this, that it wasn't exactly very long lasting. What happens to her when she arrives in England? Well, we don't know much detail, but what we do know is that her marriage didn't last very long because her husband actually died. And what happens then is that, so she's at this point, probably about 14, maybe 15, on her own probably in this kingdom. And what happens is her stepson, who we should you know, establish is, is a lot older than her, the son who has kind of been vying with Athelwolf for power in Wessex, decides that he now wants to marry her and they get married. And the appeal of that situation is probably that she is this crowned queen. She's probably carrying this status of queenship that has... There's no other woman who carries this status. She has been told that the Lord has crowned her. So she has this sacred queenship 
that she's bringing with her and that she will therefore bestow into any heirs that she has. And her stepson obviously decides that's what he wants for his wife. And it's quite a controversial move. It's not acceptable at this point to marry your stepmother, even if she is (laughs) much younger than you. And Asa has a lot to say about this. He talks about it being not even a practice that the pagans would do. You know, he's very disgusted by this. Yeah. Yeah, but I suppose it's his decision. And so they get married, but that also doesn't last very long, does it? No, so again, the marriage only lasts about two years. And during both these marriages, Judith remains without children as far as we know from the sources, and that she doesn't have any children. And she ends up being kind of 17 and twice widowed and, you know, ends up going back to her father. (laughs) Still very young, um, still a very young woman. She ends up going back to her father's court. Yeah, and because, yeah, it's it's not really a reason for her to stay. Presumably she she won't have anywhere near the same protection. She'd be quite an insecure situation here if she stayed in England. Yeah, definitely. I think she will have had some lands and wealth, as queens did at that point. She would have probably had some land that she would have had to sell off and go back because she just had no reason to stay in England. And it, it would obviously have been quite a dangerous situation for her. Yeah. And one thing I want to pick up on that we we sort of touched upon a little bit earlier on. So we were talking and that Frankish annal talking about her being crowned queen is is quite specifically talking about, you know, among the West Saxons or, you know, in Wessex. Mm. What was the situation like in other kingdoms? So places like Mercia, for example, were queens of higher status there? Is this sort of a very particular Wessex thing? Yeah, it's an interesting comparison with Mercia. I think we don't have any evidence of a coronation like we do with Judith. But what we do have is evidence of queens obviously having a much higher status than in Wessex. And there are some disparities with source material. And I think that part of that stems from the fact that King Alfred makes sure that his reign is quite well documented. So we have things like Asa's biography of Alfred that's telling us all this stuff and we don't really have an equivalent source for Mercia. But what we see in Mercia is queens being called queens, having mentions in in charters and in documents, co-signing charters for land grants and things like that, along with their husbands. They're just more visible in the documentary record. And although we don't know that they did definitely have some kind of inauguration ceremony, maybe it wasn't an anointing or a coronation, but we don't necessarily know that they didn't have that either. So you have to be quite open-minded when you're dealing with such an early period is that We just don't have the source material to say definitely yes or no, this is what was happening at that time. It's definitely quite contrasted between the two kingdoms. Yeah. That's quite interesting, isn't it? And I think a lot of the, a little bit later, you got quite some other strong characters and some strong queens coming out of Mercia, especially um, as well, haven't you? So there's, you know, who knows if it's a sort of circumstance or if it's if it's a, if it's a bigger thing I suppose it's it's probably difficult to tell. Yeah I think that there's a stronger legacy of women having power in Mercia I mean even earlier than this you have figures like Queen Kinnethrith who was married to King Offa of Mercia at the time when Mercia was a hugely dominant kingdom within England and that power shifted over time towards Wessex but actually in the 8th century Mercia was the dominant kingdom and Kinnethrith 
offers Queen, she had her own coinage, and that's almost unprecedented. Pretty much is unprecedented that a Queen consort would have her own coinage with her face on, with her name on, and she's quite well attested in sources as well, to suggest that she probably had a lot of power and influence. Definitely if you compare it to Wessex, where they won't even call their wives queens. And it's interesting that Iadva, this wicked queen that Asa talks about, is actually Kinnithris' daughter. So you have that link. That's yeah. quite interesting. And I think Asa, when he talks about Alfred's wife, I think he doesn't even mention by name in the entire biography. He just sort of says yeah. the king's wife <laughs> without even naming her, which is quite telling, I think, in a big piece of work like that. Yeah, he doesn't name Alfred's wife at all. Even though he says that he thinks it's a detestable custom that they don't have queens, he doesn't actually name her. She's quite an obscure figure. It's quite telling. But uh, let's just go back to Judith again, because I do want to just um, get our listeners to, to hear the end of her story. So she goes she goes back to her father and she stays there for a bit, but that's not quite the end of it. She has a link back to Wessex later on, doesn't she? Because she meets someone in back in Frankia eventually. Yeah, so what happens when she goes back to her father's court, as far as we can tell, is that he pretty much puts her under house arrest and he wants her to live the life of a kind of royal widow under her father's protection and what seems to happen is that her brother helps her solicit a marriage with the Count of Flanders so she basically goes off and marries Count Baldwin of Flanders without her father's permission and he's absolutely furious and Charles the Bald basically has the couple excommunicated by the Pope so he's really mad and, and there's all these stories about them having to kind of shelter with a Viking king because they were social pariahs basically and her son eventually becomes the Count of Flanders. Her son marries somebody back in, in Wessex, is that yeah, right? Yeah, so her son actually marries Alfred's daughter, Alfred. So Alfred being Judith's stepson at one point now her son is marrying his daughter and we don't actually know at this point what kind of life Judith is living, whether whether she is actually still alive. But I think it's fair to say that she probably is still alive because this connection between the West Saxon court and Flanders indicates that somebody is creating this marital match and brokering it. And Judith is a very likely candidate for that. And it's quite usual for women to have that kind of hand in their son's marriage. And, and especially because she will obviously have connections with the Wessex court. She will know people in the West Saxon court even after this time. So it's, it's quite likely that it was Judith who was... Uh, she was the pawn at the beginning and now she's kind of manoeuvring other people like the pawns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. She, as you say, she would have had exactly those contacts because actually this is it's her own step, well, former stepchildren, yeah. actually. Isn't yeah. it? so it's, it's all a bit complex. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and just to sort of round up a little bit, this whole change in status that Judith has, her being crowned queen, did that have a very significant impact in the future on future queens in, in, well, in Wessex and then later on in England as well? I would say that there's definitely a growing power. If you kind of look towards the 10th century, it doesn't stay the case that West Saxon queens, especially after the unification of England, it doesn't remain the case that they have no power and they're not called queens. 
So during the 9th century, a West Saxon rite actually emerged, a liturgical rite, which again survives like Judas' rite does, although it survives in much more varied versions and was obviously used for much more varied occasions. That includes a rite for the crowning and anointing of a queen. So there is an emergence of this practice, obviously not necessarily becoming what happens every time with every queen, but there has to be some regularity in order for it to exist in all these existing liturgical sources that we have. So obviously it becomes standard practice, if not regular practice, to crown queens. And in a way, I'm not sure what influence Judith in particular had on that. And I think that there's a, an argument to say that the unification of Wessex and Mercia had an, an impact on how much power queens had and how they were viewed as well as Judith. But it definitely, it, it set a precedent that this had been done before. So if we were going to sort of take it forward again, so going from Judith and back to the coronation of Elizabeth and, and the fact that we said earlier on about those, those actual words being reused, thinking a little bit about you know, what we can learn about these queens and their roles from these sort of liturgies and things. I mean, is that something that we can do? I mean, does the fact that those words are reused, does that tell us something valuable? Can we learn something about it from that? Or how does that all work? I think that royal ceremonies almost always appeal to a tradition. They almost always appeal to something bigger and wider. I think that ceremonies help cements royal rule in a way and that being royal kind of relies on convincing everybody that you're special and different and you're different from everybody else and I think that ceremonies are actually the key you know whether through divine power or huge shows of wealth which are both huge components of these coronation ceremonies they help set royals apart from everybody else and I think it's interesting to think about, you know, in modern British society, obviously, we don't live in a medieval society where royals have the political power, but we do in Britain live in a constitutional monarchy. And much of the relevance that royals have to the general public is through public ceremonies like jubilees and funerals, weddings, official birthdays, that kind of thing. And even actually recently, the opening of Parliament was discussed a lot. And a lot of these ceremonies have these elements of being either religious or kind of shows of wealth or just shows that there's something special and different about being royal. And, you know, I think that it's a way for royals to assert themselves as having this exalted status. And I think that it's quite telling that that seems to be the thing that has survived most potently from the early Middle Ages is this appeal back to the early Middle Ages in things like liturgy is this idea that we're going back to a time where these ceremonies were first developing. It was being used. Obviously, there was kingship before anointing, but it was definitely something that was kind of employed to cement power, to show how powerful somebody was, or even sometimes from weakness, from a position of weakness, to try and create some kind of legitimacy where there isn't any. So I think that it's it's interesting that that seems to be the thing that has survived, that people must, when people encounter the royal family, it's usually through these kind of ceremonies. 
Fantastic. Well, I think that's a really nice way of showing some of those connections and some of that. I'm not going to use the word relevance, <laughs> but some of the, the connections that we have, our current royals have to those 1100 years ago. Florence, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so, so much for sharing all your knowledge and coming along. Thanks very much. And uh, can I just remind people of your newsletter? How do they find that if they want to subscribe and find everything you've written, find out more about this? Um, so it's on Substack. It's called Alf Give Who, and you can get there by typing in florencehrs.substack.com. Fantastic. Do check that out. Some absolutely brilliant stories. I, I really love it myself. So I can recommend it heartily. Thanks again so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. This has been Gone Medieval from History Hit. And we also have a newsletter, Medieval Mondays, that you can subscribe to. Just look in the episode notes where you found this podcast and uh, that tells you how to subscribe. We hope to see you again uh, next week. Join us here Saturday. We've got a new episode with my co-host, Matt Lewis, and I'm back again next Tuesday. Thank you all for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.